You are listening to a message from Adam Reardon at Redemption Church in Belvedere, Illinois. At Redemption Church, we are all about introducing people into a growing relationship with Jesus. If you would like more information, check us out online at redemption.cc. Now stay tuned for today's message. Last week, we ended a series on the book of Nehemiah that was called Fixer Upper. And one of the things that that stuck out to me through the study on Nehemiah is it seemed as though Nehemiah had made some advanced decisions uh, that served him well uh, when problems arise in his life. What I mean by that is uh, sometimes in your life and my life, we walk into uh, things that we have to make decisions about. So maybe we walk into a circumstance, we walk into a situation, the unexpected happens, and then in that moment, unexpectedly, we then have to make decisions. And some of those decisions might be big decisions. But it seems as though Nehemiah, in that time, he doesn't tell us exactly what he does in that four months of praying, that four months of planning. But I'm so impressed by Nehemiah because uh, when all of a sudden he goes to do the work that God had called him to, and he received opposition, when people opposed him, when people were uh, trying to get him to come down from the wall, like Nehemiah doesn't spend time sweating the details. And I just kind of have this thought, I think Nehemiah made advanced decisions, So that when all of a sudden the opportunity came, when all of a sudden the opposition came, when all of a sudden there was a problem, Nehemiah could say, you know what, I've already made a decision about what I would do in this circumstance arose. Like, I don't have to make a snap decision. I don't have to just fly by the seat of my pants. I've already made some informed decisions about how I would handle these circumstances when they arose. And see, I think this is where this becomes really, really motivating. And I think this is where this becomes really, really important. Is that I think if you and I would intentionally set up some security-like features in our lives, if we had some boundaries, if we had a few measures of protection, that we could actually prevent and avoid certain catastrophic damages in our life. That if we would spend some time now deciding how we might handle future situations, future opportunities, future decisions that we could actually avoid and prevent experiencing conflict, difficulty, and hardship in our lives. See, what we're talking about is a guardrail. A guardrail is a system designed to keep vehicles from straying into dangerous or off-limit areas. If you've driven anywhere, you've seen guardrails before. They're always in dangerous places. So there's guardrails on bridges, in medians, on major curves. And, and, and what, what they do is they direct us and they protect us. Uh, Simply what a guardrail does is it's installed, it's designed to be installed in areas where they go, hey, you don't want to go any further than this. In fact, doing a little research, one of the things I discovered about guardrails are guardrails are actually designed that it would be better for you in your vehicle to hit the guardrail than it would for you to to go beyond the guardrail. The guardrails actually prevent you from going into the danger zone. Guardrails are placed in the safe zone to prevent us from going to what's beyond the guardrail. That while you hit a guardrail, sure, you might have to take the car to the body shop, and you might even have to be seen by the doctor, but if the guardrail wasn't there and you went beyond the guardrail, you might not walk away from one of those. Because what's beyond the guardrail is so dangerous. 
And see, guardrails are actually strategically placed in areas to prevent and minimize damage. And the reality is, is the highway is not the only place we need guardrails. You and I need guardrails installed in our own personal lives. Now, I don't want you to raise your hands. Uh, This isn't multiple choice, and I'm not asking for feedback. But I want you to think for just a second. I want you to think about, in your life, your greatest regret. Uh, Maybe it was morally, financially, relationally, maybe even professionally. And see, when I think about some of my biggest regrets, here's, here's what's true, and I bet this is true about some of your biggest regrets, that if we had guardrails, we probably could have avoided them. Like, we, we could have avoided and maybe prevented some of the damage in our lives. And this is where I think this becomes so intriguing. I think this is where the idea of guardrails becomes so powerful. is because you and I could actually minimize the damage. We could actually avoid and prevent future regrets if we began to think about establishing guardrails in our personal lives. Now, here, here's, here's the thing. I'll just always be as honest with you as I know how to be, and I'll always be as transparent with you as I know how to be, and here's the reality. When it comes to establishing guardrails in your life, and when it comes to establishing guardrails in my life, it will cause tension. In fact, one of the tensions that you'll begin to experience in your life, and one of the tensions I'll begin to experience in my life when we establish guardrails, is our culture does not encourage or celebrate guardrails. See, a guardrail is a hard stop. It says, hey, I won't go any further than this. And hey, anything beyond that guardrail is out of bounds. It's off limits. That's no man's or no woman's zone. And see, our culture doesn't like rules. Our culture doesn't like hard no's. Our culture is content with painted lines, suggestions, and warnings. But we're resistant to saying something might be right and something might be wrong. In fact, as you begin to kind of take this journey, if you begin to really investigate this and establish these in your life, you might even have people around you. They could be friends or family, and what they'll say to you is like, hey, this seems kind of rigid. Like, I know you heard this at church. This kind of seems religious. This kind of seems like a church thing, but here's the thing. No one will encourage you or celebrate you for having guardrails because our culture loves to paint lines and offer suggestions. Think about it. You've heard some of these. Like what our culture said is, hey, just drink responsibly. Well, have you ever thought about that? Does a responsible drinker ever know when they start drinking irresponsibly? Like at what point is there a responsible, irresponsible drinker? Like, we talk about debt, and what the culture said is, hey, consolidate your debt, which doesn't say get out of debt. It says just put it all in one big lump sum. Like, there's no financial freedom. It's like just don't have multiple debt accounts. Just have one large debt account. Now, this is, this is kind of an interesting one because I, I had to go to, I went to public school. So if you ever wondered anything about me, I'm a public school kid. 
And like I had to go through like the sex ed class. And like one of the things our culture says is, hey, just wait until you're ready. And see, I think that sentence was probably written by a woman. Because if you walk into a high school and tell a group of boys, hey, wait to have sex until you're ready, the boys are like, we already talked and we are. Like we've been ready for a really long time. And when, and when can that happen? Like, like this weekend, like well, saying, wait till you're ready. Like most high school boys are like, I was born ready and I'm looking forward to it. That's a painted line. Maybe the worst, the one from the bottom of the barrel is our culture tells people, hey, just listen to your heart. Just follow your dreams. And you'll get, yeah, but what if my heart is telling me something that's bad for me? And what if my dream is actually something that would result in disaster? See, while our culture is resistant to rules, here's what I would offer you this suggestion to consider. Culture is not a good guide for our lives. And the reason for that is because culture is always changing. Fashion is always in and out, and then years later comes back in. Like, culture is always changing, it's always moving, and the rules are always different. That's why if you hang around with people who are much older than you, they'll tell you stories about when they were a kid and the way things were, and what they're saying is, hey, as I look around, this isn't my experience. This wasn't what culture was like when I was your age, because culture is always moving and always changing. And here's what I want you to know. Culture will ridicule you for having guardrails. But culture will also mock you and shame you when you end up in the ditch. Now, I know this is a little controversial. I know like this, this one might invoke some emotion, and I'm okay, but I want you to think about this. There was a guy, probably the greatest evangelist of our time, Billy Graham. And one of the things that Billy Graham was known for was having the Billy Graham rule. They kind of named it after him. And Billy Graham is a, a man that led thousands upon thousands, maybe millions of people to Jesus. And one of the things that's encouraging to me is Billy Graham went the distance, right? Uh, there's no asterisk next to his name. There's no moral failure. There's nothing where they could come back and say, hey, he did things that were bad, that he went the distance. And so what one of his rules, kind of one of his guiding things is he said, hey, when it comes to my life, I so love my wife. I'm so bought into my marriage. I'm so into this death do us part. I just won't allow any kind of temptation to happen with a member of the opposite sex. So Billy Graham had a rule. He would never be alone in a room with a woman that wasn't his wife. He wouldn't go out to eat in a restaurant with a woman alone other than his wife. He wouldn't travel with a woman alone. So that if, if Billy was going to meet with a woman, there was always another woman there, somebody from his staff, or his wife. He was known for this. Now here's a guy who goes, hey, I just want to eliminate any room for temptation, any room for the devil to work, any room for people to come back and say, hey, he was having an inappropriate relationship. Now, interesting enough, if you follow politics at all, Vice President Mike Pence adopted Billy Graham's rule for his life. That he said, hey, I'm a, I'm a politician, and, and I love my wife, and here's the thing, I just, I just don't want to go into a situation where there could be temptation or where somebody could say, I'm having an inappropriate relationship. Now, here's the thing. When the media got a hold of this, they went crazy. 
Everybody's like, well, Mike Pence hates women. Mike Pence doesn't, you know, he's just all this stuff. And here's what I want you to know. The culture won't celebrate you for having guardrails, but they will mock you and shame you because here's the thing. You know what culture says about a guy that runs away with a woman that's not his wife? Like, you know what culture says about a a, a woman that, that runs away with her yoga instructor? You know what it says about a man who has multiple marriages? Like, here, here's the one, right? I know this is a little tension, and I know this is political, so you'll have to forgive me in advance, but here's the deal. The same people that bash Mike Pence for trying to protect his marriage are the same people that want to impe- impeach Trump for having an affair before he was president. And you're like, so which is it? Is it wrong to protect your marriage, or is it wrong to destroy your marriage? culture says, no, 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 we don't want to get involved in any of that. We just want you to figure it out for yourselves. They will not celebrate you, but they will mock you and shame you when you mess up. And here's what I want you to consider. I think we see all throughout scripture this idea of establishing guardrails in our lives. But there will be tension. Because you'll have to tell people maybe who you've told yes a hundred times, you'll begin to tell them, no, I can't go there, I'm not going to do that. The people go, hey, this sounds a little bit religious. This seems like you're kind of taking a hard stance on these things. There will be tension. You won't be celebrated. But here's what I think is true. I think if we establish guardrails, you'll have fewer regrets, and I'll have fewer regrets. And now this thing about guardrails isn't a new idea. In fact, it's not even an original idea. In fact, it's really a God idea. That all throughout scripture, we see this idea about healthy boundaries. We see this idea about knowing when to say yes, knowing when to say no, knowing when we're in the safe zone, and knowing when we're headed into the danger zone. You can see it all throughout scripture. Yet, I want to specifically this morning look at Ephesians chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, or if you want to turn on your Bible, Ephesians chapter 5 is where we're going to be. We'll also have all the scriptures up on the screen. But here's what I want you to know. Paul is writing a letter to a church talking to a group of people who live in an immoral, corrupt culture. And I know this is difficult to believe, but I think their culture is worse than our culture. That they were dealing with some stuff that that our culture said, hey, we're not going to deal with that anymore. I would give you the suggestion that their culture is a little worse than ours. And Paul is talking to the church. He's talking to believers in Christ in Ephesians chapter 5. And he's telling them, here's some things you should do and here's some things you shouldn't do. Here's some things that you should pursue and here's some things that you should avoid. And what Paul is letting them know is he's saying, listen, God wants the best for you. And God's giving you his best in Jesus. And see, the earliest believers in Christ were so convinced that when Jesus claimed to be God, that he was telling the truth. When they saw the resurrection, everything changed. When Jesus says in John 14, 6, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, they believed it, and their lives revolved around that truth. So they believed that Jesus and his teaching were really the truth that matters. That they really believed that Jesus and his teachings were the only way to live. They really believed that if Jesus is the life, then it would be better for them to lose their lives living for Jesus than to live their lives without having Jesus at all. 
And so what happens is, is they begin to understand, as Paul teaches them, that, hey, there's some things that are good for you, and there's some things that are bad for you. There's some things that will help you in your walk with Jesus, but there's other things that will actually destroy you. And in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15, Paul says it this way. He says, look carefully then how you walk. Now, some of your translations, if you're using a different translation of the Bible, some of them will say, look carefully how you live, because walk is a metaphor for live. That Paul's going, listen, be careful in your day-to-day going, in your day-to-day doing, be careful in your day-to-day life how you live. I think what Paul's trying to establish in us is what I would call a backyard mentality. I'll just talk about my backyard because I don't know anything about your backyard. But uh, we have a, a backyard at our house, and we've been working on it. We've got some mulch down, some rocks. We, we like to go outside on a nice day. Our backyard's a place for recreation and enjoyment. Now, in our house, we also have three dogs, and they're medium to large dogs. And see, our, our dogs like to spend time outside during the day as well. However, they use the backyard not for relaxation and enjoyment. That's where they go to the bathroom. So when our two worlds collide, it can be bad. So one of the things that happens at our house is there is constant doo-doo pickup, okay? <coughs> Which mainly is done by my wife and my kids. And there's at least one dog that waits till cleanup is done to go to the bathroom. He's an evil genius. I think he's like, you know what? The bags are out. The rakes are out. Holding it. Just going to hold it. And then once it's all cleaned up, he sneaks out and drops his bomb. So every now and then, no matter what we do, no matter the effort, we still know there's probably one out there hidden somewhere. So if you ever come to my backyard, I'll tell you, hey, we did cleanup, but you got to watch for landmines. Because there's that unexpected, there's that evil genius that might leave one behind there. We tell the kids when they go outside, got to watch for landmines. If you have pets, you know this, right? If you have pets, you know this is true. And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, listen, you have to be careful where you step. You've got to be careful how you live. You've got to be careful with your decisions because there's landmines out there. In fact, he, he goes on and he gives us kind of this illustration. He says, be carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Paul says that when it comes to your life, when it comes to my life, there's, there's actually wise ways to live, which means there's also foolish ways to live. That what Paul says in your life and my life, that what, what we would do as Christ followers is we would always pursue him. That we would always pursue what is right, but when it becomes difficult, like when we have to make a decision between what is right and what is wrong, what our default should be is, hey, what is wise? Like, I don't think this is wrong. Like, maybe this is even unclear. And Paul says, and your best bet is to be wise in your living, wise in your decision-making. I heard a pastor say it this way. He said, wisdom is whenever we approach an opportunity or a situation in a decision, we should ask this question. Based on my past experiences, my current circumstances, and my future hopes and dreams, what is the wise thing for me to do? Based on my past experiences, going, hey, where have I been in the past, and how do those things work out for me? 
based on my current circumstances, what's going on in my life, and based on my future hopes and dreams, what is the wise thing for me to do? Because what Paul says next is fascinating. He continues on, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Here's what Paul says. He goes, listen, if you just put your life on autopilot, you will probably experience things you don't want to experience because the days are evil. Now, Paul says two things that really stick out to me. The first one is this, is he's telling us, hey, don't waste your time. Like, don't, don't, don't misuse your time, because if you live foolishly, you know what you'll waste is a lot of time. And we know this, because in your life, in my life, we've made decisions, and while we made the decision in an instant, the consequences, the coming back from, the having the follow-up conversations took days, weeks, months, and some even took Years to resolve, undo, and heal from. What Paul says is you have to be careful because the days are evil. And I think, I think we know this. Like I think there's something in our hearts where we go, yeah, you know, I think I would agree with that, that statement. Like there's, there's just evil in the world. Like things don't seem to be getting better all on their own. Like, you, you even look at, at what happened with, with the shootings. We had one nearby that was thwarted by a, a police officer who's a hero. But then you look at even Santa Fe where there's another shooting. And you go, you know, it just seems like there's this persistent evil that is after us in the world. And Paul says, you know why it feels that way? Because it is. Because there is an enemy. Because there is evil in the world. Because there is bad stuff out there looking for people to get. So he says, don't be foolish. But I want you to be wise. I want you to be careful. I want you to think about what you're doing because morally, financially, ethically, and in your relationships, in your marriage, you have to be careful because there's landmines out there. And the days are evil. So I love what Paul tells us to do. He says, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, this is interesting because Paul's making a command to understand. He's going, hey, I want you to understand this. I think what Paul is really doing is he's saying, listen, listen, I, I want you to understand something about you I want you to understand something about the culture you live in, and I want you to understand something about a God who loves you. <clears throat> he goes, you know what? You have a brain. God has created you in his image, and he's given you a conscience. And he says, you have the ability to know. He says, you know what's going on in your life. You know where you're flirting with danger. Like, don't deceive yourself. Don't think you can just do all kinds of things that are bad for you and they'll never, ever catch up with you. He goes, don't deceive yourself. You have the capability to look at the path you're on and kind of determine where that path is going to lead you to. He says, stop deceiving yourself. Stop acting like what you do today doesn't affect your tomorrow. Don't fool yourself. Be 
wise, what you do today, has an impact on your tomorrow. You and I know, we know that one thing always leads to another. But where we're blind, I think, is in our own lives. See, we're like detective experts in other people's lives, aren't we? Like, you've had that conversation before. Somebody's making a decision, and you just go, I don't know. I don't know if I'd make that decision. You know, I think if they go that way, I don't think it's going to end well for them. And we see that in other people's lives. But when it comes to our life, we're like oblivious. We're like, well, we'll just do it and see what happens. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just going to say yes because it'll feel good or it might, you know, who knows. We'll just see. And Paul says, come on, don't deceive yourself. You know that there are some areas in your life that you are dangerously close to being on the wrong side of the guardrail. And see, the reason we have to wrestle with this is because in Galatians chapter 5, 16 to 26, Paul is speaking to the church, and he says, hey, church, I want you to know something about yourself. He says, you will experience two desires in your heart and your mind. You will experience the desire of the flesh, and you will experience the, the desires of your spirit, the Holy Spirit inside of you, and they will always be a wrestling match, that you will actually desire things that aren't good for you, and at the same time, you'll actually desire things that are good for you, and you will sometimes have a UFC, MMA-style cage match in your heart and mind between choosing what is good for you and choosing what is bad for you, that you will have a conflicted mindset in you from time to time because the, the things of the Holy Spirit will argue against the things that your flesh desires. Now, here's the thing. We all mess up. Like, we talk about it here at Redemption Church that everybody's welcome and nobody's perfect. In fact, we joke sometimes when we say that no perfect people are allowed because we all, like, have a pretty self, like, good self-awareness. Like, none of us think we're perfect. And if you're here and you think you are perfect, you're probably more jacked up than the rest of us because you don't have a sense of reality. Like, but we're all a little bit jacked up. We all mess up. We all experience this conflict, in fact, if we're really honest with ourselves, in our lives, each of us probably has an area in our life where we tend to play really close to the edge. And Paul goes, come on, you know this about yourself. You know that you tend to act the question, what can I get away with? Is it legal? How close can I get to sinning without actually sinning? How can I break the rules without ever breaking the rules? How can I go a certain amount without actually going too far? And what Paul says to you and what he says to me is he says, hey, stop playing with disaster in your life. And I think Paul, as he's speaking to the church in Ephesus, goes, you know what? I want to give you an example. I want to give you something to hold on to. I want you to see what this looks like. So he gives us this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. He says, do not get drunk with wine. I want you to hear something that's interesting about Paul's time. In Paul's time, running water, for the most part, was safe. So if you wanted to go get water from a stream, that would actually be pretty safe. But stagnant water was unsafe. And if you just think back in their time, no refrigeration, no great way to store water. If you went down to the river and filled some buckets with water and then you let them sit there for a while, yeah, not so good. 
So one of the answers for that, one of the ways they purified water is they actually had something that was called watered wine or wined water. What they do is they would actually make wine and then they would add water to it so that it actually fermented the water and water wine was safe. It would last longer. But the problem is it's like alcoholic water. So you're like at dinner table going, pass me the water jug and somebody hacks you watered wine and it's, it's got a proof to it. And so what Paul's going is, listen, it's not that you guys are necessarily hitting the bars, but like, listen, in your homes, everybody's got watered wine. He goes, I want to help you establish a guardrail. Don't get drunk. In fact, the, the way that it says it in the Greek is kind of like this. It says, do not get drunk for it leads to. The way the ESV reads it is, do not get drunk on wine for that is debauchery. It's this idea of the, the getting drunk in itself is bad enough. But here's what you know and here's what I know. That once you're drunk, nothing good happens. Like you've never heard the story where somebody was like, I was having a horrible day, so I got plowed, wasted. And after I was wasted, my communication with my spouse was more intimate, it was more clear. Like my job performance was excellent, I got a raise that day. In fact, I was less angry, I was just a better person to be around, and I feel like I made really wise decisions once I was drunk. You've never heard that testimony before. And Paul says the problem with being drunk is that being drunk leads to other things that aren't good for you. That the being drunk is bad enough in itself, but it doesn't bring about anything good or healthy in your life. He says, so don't get drunk. It's not good for you. Nothing good happens once you're there. Now, I just want to pause on this for a second because you know people. You know people whose lives would be completely different if do not get drunk was a guardrail. Like, you know people whose lives would be completely different if they just said, no, you know what? I've decided drunkenness isn't something that I want to flirt with in my life. So, so I've made some pre-advanced decisions. I've set up, established a guardrail in my life that prevents me from going there. In fact, some of us in this room, your life would be completely different. If someone you loved had it as a guardrail, or if you yourself had do not get drunk as a guardrail. And we don't hit on this stuff like all the time, but here's what I want to say it since the scripture led us there. Listen, if more than one person in your life has told you that you drink too much, you do. And I don't say that because I want to be your judge. I don't. I say that because I believe God loves you and wants to help. I believe that God has freedom and joy and hope that can be yours through Christ. And this is what Paul is saying to us today. He's going, listen, don't get drunk on wine. There's something better. He says, don't get drunk on wine, for that is debauchery. He says, but rather be filled with the Holy Spirit. What Paul does is he brings in his faith in Jesus. He brings in his faith in the resurrection. He goes, listen, there's something better for you. Because Paul believes that Jesus dies on the cross in our place for our sin. And he rose on the third day and promised that he was going to send us his helper, the Holy Spirit, as a sign, a seal, and a gift. And Paul goes, you know what's good for you? is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He goes, instead of giving over control to alcohol, instead of giving over control to anybody or anything, you know what would be better for you? To live surrendered to Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. 
In Romans 6, 1, or Romans 6, 14, Paul tells us that sin no longer has to be our master, but rather we could live empowered by the grace of God. So Paul goes, you know what would be better for you? Like, instead of getting drunk, what if you spent time in God's word? Like, instead of being filled with alcohol, what if you were filled with the Holy Spirit who empowers you and reminds you of the words of Christ? It says, rather than submitting yourselves to the effects of alcohol, what if you submitted yourself to the power and the authority and the working of God in your life? And see, part of the way we do that is by reading the word of God and then responding to the promptings of God through the Holy Spirit. This is how this works in my life. And some people have like these big, like majestic ways the Holy Spirit works. For me, it's kind of like whenever I'm about to make a decision, it's like the Holy Spirit whispers, I wouldn't. When I'm about to do something that I'm thinking about, the Holy Spirit goes, you know better. It's kind of like the Holy Spirit sits there and it's like, mm-mm, 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 mm-mm. No, no, mm, yeah, that one, that one. And Paul goes, listen, why don't you do that in your life? Because here's the thing. I know this is in week one, and I know we're hitting some heavy stuff, but here's the thing, right? Nobody plans to wreck their life. Nobody plans to wreck their marriage. Nobody plans to wreck their career. Nobody. But we also don't plan not to. And what Paul encourages us to do is if we would set up some guardrails, guardrails is how we plan to not to. Making some decisions in advance about how we'll live, what we'll allow, what we'll say yes to, and what we'll say no to enables us to walk wisely and live carefully. Paul says, hey, be careful how you live. Don't be foolish, but be wise. And I want you to redeem every opportunity because the days are evil. And what Paul says to you and what he says to me is that we need to establish some things in our lives, some boundaries, some guardrails that would help us say no to things. Because when we say no to things that are bad for us, we actually step in the direction of the God who loves us. That when we stay away from sin that so easily entangles us, when we step away from the things that are actually there to destroy us, it's actually a step in the direction of God's will and his grace towards us. And see, if you and if I, if together we would establish some guardrails, it means if we would make some decisions in advance, it means when someone in the office is going to, it means when some of your friends are offering to, It means when some of your family says or when that opportunity arises again, we can say, you know what, this is not for me. And I hear what you're saying, and I hear all the reasons you think, and I know all the cool kids are doing it, but for me, this is where I draw the line. For me, this is where I tap out. For me, I don't go any further than this because guardrails serve to direct us and protect us from what lies beyond in the danger zone. And guardrails won't necessarily make your life easier because there will be tension. There will be conversations you have to have. There'll be stuff that you probably do now that you might not do in the future. So guardrails won't necessarily make your life easier, but here's what I do think it'll do. Guardrails will make it easier for you to discern what God's will is for you. 
And not only will you know what God's will is for you, but it will actually enable you to take steps closer to the one who loves you instead of taking steps towards the one who wants to destroy you. See, this isn't about becoming better people. This isn't about becoming a a new version of yourself. This is about becoming more surrendered people to the God who loves you so much that he would die for you, to save you from your sins and to give you a right relationship with him. See, not only will guardrails make it easier for you to discern God's will for you, guardrails will help you to live in such a way that your life would give glory to your Father in heaven. So let me ask you this. Where do you need to start? Like, where's an area in your life that you need a guardrail? And where you start is the same place I start. It's that area in our life where we're flirting with disaster, where we're driving just a little bit too close to the edge. It's where the Holy Spirit prompts you and goes, I wouldn't go there. I wouldn't do that. You know what that leads to. And I'd also invite you to come back next week. We're going to pick up right from here and talk about some real practical guardrails and how we can install them in our lives. Thanks again for listening to this message from Redemption Church in Belvedere, Illinois where we believe faith is a journey, not a guilt trip. Listen again next week, but in the meantime, visit us at redemption.cc.